Well, last week I asked you to consider uh, this question. What breaks your heart and moves you to action? You see, there's a lot of things that, uh, that can break our hearts and we feel bad, but they don't move us to action. And we asked you last week to to think about that question. What breaks your heart and moves you to action? It moves you to the point where you actually do something because God broke your heart. And I've been excited to hear this week that many of you have discussed that question this week. Some of you did it at the dinner table, uh, in your life groups, uh, on the car ride home last week. I mean, I know, I know you evaluate the sermon every single week when you go home, right? Say, how do you know that? Because I do that when I'm not speaking. I do. I, you know, I fully admit it. And you're kind of evaluating me. You know, what was he talking about? We didn't understand what he was saying. I, I get all that. And so I know some of you kind of started that conversation even when you got in the car. And, and that's really great. But A lot of you, I think, are like me, and you happen to be people who like to talk about stuff um, more than you actually like to do. And um, and, and Scripture talks about that, that we're supposed to be not just hearers of the word, but we're supposed to be doers. And I want to challenge you to actually uh, do something. Uh, We we said last week, and uh, I had several people that said, wow, you know, you were really passionate about that about that message. Well, I'm passionate about it because uh, I actually, and I'm sure I'm not the only one on our staff that does this, but I lay in the bed at night and I think about these things, such as the life of a pastor, right? I lay in bed at night and I think I can see the building built. I can see us occupying a building and doing stuff on that land. I mean, it's like it exists to me right now. And, and, and a lot of times when I'm, when I'm laying there in the bed and I'm thinking about these things, what comes to my mind is what I said last week. Wouldn't it be a tragic thing to see God do something like he's already done in providing our land, like he's already done in what we, in what we committed to a year ago in this Irresistible Influence Project. If he did all of that and we got a building and yet we were not a people who had hearts that were broken for other people. That'd be the worst thing in the world to me. And some of you have been part of churches like that, that have big, beautiful buildings that are filled with people who have hearts to do absolutely nothing except sit in a holy huddle. And I'm not interested. I said it last week. I reiterate it again. For those of you that weren't here last week, listen to the podcast. I'm out. I don't want to be part of that. And I know many of you don't either. So it is incredibly important that we ask ourselves the question right now before we occupy a place, are we a people whose hearts have been broken for anything outside of our own little world that brings us to the point of action, that we would actually do something? Oh, you say, well, well, you really just need my money, right? I'm totally honest about that. You will not find, I don't think, a more transparent pastor than me. We need your money, all right? Although I would say it ain't your money. It's God's money. He entrusted it into your care. And so you ought to be asking, what, God, do you want me to do with the money that you've entrusted to my management, all right? I get that. We need money. But I'm telling you this. If you give all the money and we build a building and we were to build it debt-free, and yet it was occupied by people that do not have hearts that are broken for people, it means absolutely nothing. 
And we would do well all across this country in churches and evangelical churches to understand that. God does not need our buildings. God needs our hearts. And if our hearts are broken for what breaks his, we will be a people and ultimately then we will be a place of irresistible influence. That's what I want to be part of. That's what I signed up for seven years ago. That's what some of you signed up for seven years ago, a small pocket of you. And those of you that have come and said Northwest is your home, hopefully that's what you've signed up for. If you haven't, uh, we'll give you just a few moments now. You can exit. There's all kinds of other churches around here. You can go to them and they will never have an expectation of you to be anything except to come and occupy a seat. That's not who we are. Full disclosure, that's not who we are. We want to be a people in a place of irresistible influence. We want to actually have our hearts broken, and then we want to do something. You know, one year ago, I, uh, I began talking about the possibility with uh, Jerry about him coming uh, to Northwest. And I remember it very well because it was on my birthday. And Jerry texted me and wished me a happy birthday. And we started going back and forth text messaging. And um, finally, Jerry texted me the weather forecast for uh, this place that he was in, in Michigan, and I said, look, dude, that is your problem, all right? You could have come here many years ago. You chose not to. Enjoy. And so I said, are you ready to move? And he said, I might be willing to talk if there were a church that blah, 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 blah. And I said, hey, you know the church. And so Jerry and I started a conversation that led to a conversation with our elders. And I thought it'd be good this morning for Jerry to have uh, his family come up. And for him to talk to you just real briefly about his perspective of someone who has come in the last six months, over the last year, and was not part of uh, what many of us did a year ago. And I think he brings an interesting perspective, and I want him to share for just, uh, just a moment. Yeah, thanks. It's been great being here. Just a little over six months is uh, when we landed <coughs> there in early August. And, uh, and I brought my family up here as well. Uh, this is my wife, Becca, and this is sweet little Madison. And that's Caden. Madison's um, eight. Caden just turned 11. And this is Autumn, and she's 12. And I wanted to bring all of them up here uh, because we just, I just wanted to share with you what uh, Northwest has meant to my family, to all of us. It's been really neat to, um, to be able to see engagement on every level. You know, Becca's been involved in some of the women's ministry stuff and on the worship team as well. Um, Madison and Caden are both just being uh, taught and trained and encouraged uh, over there as part of Northwest Kids on so many different levels. Um, they've been, over the last couple of weeks, practicing the books of the Bible uh, at our house. Anybody else have that experience? Have you got some in Northwest Kids, right? That's what they're learning. The Old Testament, the New Testament, books of the Bible, learning in their Bible. And so, you know, Caden especially can just spout them off real quick. And guess who does not know all of the books in the Bible in the Old Testament? My wife, Becca. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Well, probably not. No. And this guy who went to seminary and like supposed to be the professional Christian guy. So Caden's, you know, just kind of Obadiah. And then and I'm like, well, is that right, Dad? Um, I don't know. Let me check. Yeah, you almost got it. But anyway, so man, the encouragement that we get from what's going on in Northwest Kids is incredible. 
Caden got the opportunity over Christmas with some of the people from his class to go around and to sing Christmas carols to some senior citizens and to some shut-ins with Angie, our Northwest Kids director, and her husband. And just these different ministry opportunities have been really incredible. And then uh, Autumn is involved in the student ministry in middle school and went to the uh, winter camp that was huge this spring break. They're doing a trip to serve over spring break in the city of Durham to serve some of the people that are in, in great need. Um, so we're just continually blessed by this church. And I wanted to bring that to you as somebody who's only been here half a year. And um, maybe some of you guys are like me. Maybe you weren't around a year ago when all this was being talked about and when the, when the vision was laid out about what this place could be. Well, I just wanna say thank you guys for your generosity. Because we're sliding in late in the game. And the fact that we're getting to experience all this stuff is a result that so many of you guys have been faithful, many of you for, for many, many years in support of this church. And we're the beneficiaries of that. And so now I'm excited this morning and we're excited this morning to make an investment and to be a part of it. And um, so maybe you're like me and excited about that. I hope so. As we look down at the number that we're talking about, it's scary to think about, um, you know, but I have been in ministry long enough and live life long enough to know that when you're investing in what's right and when you're giving to God, he is not going to, he's not going to leave you shorthanded. He's going to provide. And we've seen that so many different times. So it's been an awesome blessing to be here and we're excited to be a part of it. Thanks, Jerry. Well, you know, if you'd asked me uh, a year ago, is there one guy that you've worked with in the past that you'd love to work with again, Jerry Hines would, would have been at the top of that list. And uh, as many of you know, Jerry and I, um, I hired him right as he was finishing up uh, school. And uh, we worked together for five years at uh, Colonial Baptist Church in student ministry. And then uh, uh, Jerry left, um, did not follow God's will for his life, but left. And um, <laughs> As a result of that, God had him wander in the wilderness of Michigan for nine years, and now he's come home. The prodigal has come home, and we're thankful for that. And Diana and I just had five great years with Jerry and Becca and really grew to love them and their kids, and it's just a really special thing for them to be back on our team. And I know many of you have benefited and appreciated the Heinz, and many more of you will as you get to know them. So... We're thankful that they're, uh, that they're here with us at Northwest. Well, just real quickly, um, I, I, wanna, I wanna ask you this question. What does a church of irresistible influence look like? Some of you heard me talk about these things a year ago, and yet I think it's important for us to be reminded of them uh, on a regular basis. Um, would you even know if you saw a church of irresistible influence? Do, do you know enough about what it should look like that if you saw one, you'd go, that's it. I've been to churches that I know are not churches of irresistible influence. I've been to churches where I could easily resist whatever it is they're offering. I've been a part of some of those. When I was a child, there are churches, when I think back to some churches that I went to when I was a child, that I don't ever want to go to again. They were scary places. Uh, there, there were places where people were very stern and and mean, especially towards, towards little kids. And if we ran in the hallways, you know, or, you know, popped up puppets in the baptistry or anything like that, you got in trouble for stuff like that. It was a scary place. These were not places that I wanted to be. Have you ever seen a place, though, that, 
that you would think is a church of irresistible influence, and would you know it if you saw it? You know, in the doctrine of ecclesiology, which is what we refer to as the doctrine of the church, uh, you recognize, if you're really honest, that there's a lot that we don't know, a lot that God purposely, I think, didn't tell us about what a church should look like. He really told us very little, a few things that we should do. Obviously, the gospel is paramount. We, we know that. We know we're supposed to um, remember his death until he comes. We have communion, and, and we know that we baptize those that have placed their trust in Christ alone as their Savior. But, but really, we know very little about what a church should look like. I, I think God purposely had it that way so that we would figure it out based on our culture and based on what we know to be the timeless truths of Scripture that we know we don't vacillate from. But in Acts chapter 2, in the birth of the early church, I believe that the church that we see there has the marks of irresistible influence. Not too long from now, uh, Jerry and I are going to go through a series in the book of Acts, and I'm really looking forward to that. We're going to exposit many of the text in the book um, really in depth. This morning, I don't have time to do that, but for those of you that maybe uh, you're a new follower of Jesus, you, you're not real familiar with your Bible, in Acts chapter 2 is what we, we historically look at as Christians as the birth of the New Testament church. The Holy Spirit is, is, is at work and is, is moving. Peter has just preached at Pentecost, and people have, have, have said in, in, in verse 30, 37 of, of chapter 2, it says they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brother, what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed to do? Whatever it is that you're talking about, we want that. And so thousands of people come to Christ and the early church starts, and then in verses 42 to 47, we get some of those marks of the church of irresistible influence. I want to remind you of them. Look at verse 42 of chapter 2. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together. They had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And verse 47 says, Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I want to real quickly give you nine characteristics of a church of irresistible influence. Just real quick. Number one is that they were a studying church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Let me tell you that as long as I'm here at Northwest, and I would say our current leadership team is in place here at Northwest, we will always be a teaching, a studying church. We're always going to do that. We're always going to open up the Word of God, and we're going we're to explain it to you. We're going to tell you what God meant by what he said and what, what we should do as a result of what he said. They were a studying church. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, not so, by the way, so that they could become just smarter sinners. That's what a lot of us do. We got big, fat, spiritual heads, and we, um, we become smarter sinners. We know lots of stuff. Some of you have heard me say it. You've heard me say it. You could repeat it yourself. Some of us know more than we ever have any intention of doing. Let me say that again. Some of us know more than we ever have any intention of doing. For many of us, it is, not, it is not that we need to know more scripture. For some of us, it is. We're ignorant of the things of the word of God. 
But for many of us, we're not ignorant of the things of the word of God. It's getting to the point where we actually put action, as we were talking about earlier, with what we know. They were a studying church so they could become transformed people who were influencers of others with the gospel. And remember, you can never teach what you don't know. You can never influence with that which you do not know and you have not experienced yourself. They were a studying church. Number two, they were a relational church. It says the fellowship. That word uh, in the Greek New Testament is a word that is uh, koinonia. It's an incredibly rich word. In fact, most Greek scholars will tell you there's really no way to translate it properly into, into the English language. Our word fellowship that is most often translated from koinonia, it doesn't really do it justice uh, because it's so rich and it's just, we don't have any word in the English language which tells you exactly what these people were experiencing other than koinonia. They were relational. They were brothers and sisters. They were holding something in common is what koinonia means. A lot of us look at fellowship and if you're like me, when you were growing up, you had... uh, in your church, you had what? You had a fellowship hall. No other room was called a hall, just the fellowship hall. Every other room was a room, but you had the fellowship hall. And in the fellowship hall in my church, here's what we had. It was the place most often where we went and we had red punch, red, always red. You can't have any color. I don't know if it's because the blood of Jesus is red. And so we have red punch, all right? It was always watered down. It really wasn't as sweet as it should be. And then we had stale sugar cookies. That's what we had. And that's what I remembered the fellowship hall to be. And so when I hear the word fellowship, I think of red punch and stale cookies. That's what I think of. However, the early church, to say that they had fellowship, they were enjoying the fellowship, it was rich. And I know we experienced some of that here at Northwest. There are some of you, quite honestly, I feel closer to you than I do some members of my own family. (laughs) Because we do life every single day. Many of you, I talk to several times a week. We do life together. There are guys in this church that as they leave today, they'll put their arm around me and they'll say, I love you. My friend Pepe does that every time he leaves me. Hasn't known the Lord for just a few years, but he puts his arm around me and he says, I love you, man. That is what they had in common. They had fellowship. It was rich. They were relational. That's why you see that flag flying when you come in on Sunday morning that says belonging, right? We want you to belong. That's what fellowship is. That means we have something in common, our bond in Jesus Christ. They were a relational church. Number three, they were a Christ-centered church. They broke the bread together. They remembered Christ's broken body and his shed blood for them. They were Christ-centered. Unfortunately, many of our churches are not Christ-centered. Many of our evangelical churches, those churches that hold to a true gospel, they would preach a true gospel just like we do. They are not Christ-centered. They are uh, nothing more than consumer-centered. Whatever it is that you want us to say, what are your felt needs, that's what we do. What programs do you want us to have? What look do you want us to have on a stage? What environment should we create for you? Some of those are good questions to ask, but at the end of the day, we are to be centered upon Jesus Christ. That's what this is all about this morning. It isn't necessarily about your felt needs 
or what you want to be true of a church. It is about Jesus. It's about Christ. They were a Christ-centered church. They were a praying church. It says they gave themselves to prayer. I'm convicted on a regular basis that we're not praying the way that we should be praying as a church. I know that's happening in our life groups. I know a number of you have very significant personal prayer times. But as Jerry said earlier, we're convicted as a staff and as an elder team that we need to pray more fervently. We need to beg of God to do something awesome in our lives, in our families, in this community, in our church. That's what they were doing constantly. They knew, if you look back, by the way, to Acts chapter one, they were scared to death about what was happening and they knew the only way that they were going to be to accomplish what God wanted them to accomplish is if they were a praying people and that was true of the early church. Number five, they were a happening church. You say, where's that? Well, it's translated from the Greek. It kind of is happening. I, I read this where it says, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Something was happening there. Don't you want to be part of a place of a group of people where you see stuff happening on a regular basis? Yeah, I do. I, I, I want to be part. Of, don't, don't you want to be part of that? I mean, I do. I don't want to come Sunday after Sunday after Sunday and never hear any stories about people's lives being changed and transformed. I don't want to do that. I mean, if nothing's ever going to be happening, I just want to go and get a real job where I have to work, you know, five days a week instead of just one. I want to go and, and I, I, want to, I want to do that. I mean, if nothing's ever happening, you know what keeps us going, those of us that are on staff here at Northwest? It's stories. <laughs> Some people have told me in years past, you know, oh, I'm story time with Brian at the elder meeting tonight. And I'm telling the elders, here's what's happening. You hear about this person and that person and here's what God's doing here. And I've told our elders, if you don't have stories... You're not, you're not doing the work of the ministry. Because when God shows up and God does something incredible, we're going to have stories, right? Yeah, yeah, we will. There'll be stories. You'll be talking about how this person, I met them, they were my neighbor. I invited them to come to church. They'd been away from church for years and, and then they came to know Jesus. And, and now, you know, you just be telling stories, right? I think that was happening in the early church. That's why an awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Stuff was happening. Things were going down. Number six, they were a sharing church. It says, and all who believed together had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They were a sharing church. Some of you've heard me tell the story that when my dad passed away, he left me no stocks, bonds, mutual funds, none of that, nothing. No real estate, nothing. He left me old tools and old books. But I do have a lot of old tools. And I got stuff that's really good. Some of it I don't even know what it is. So if you come over and you go, can I use it? I'll go, I don't know what it is, but you're welcome to use it. And it wasn't too many years ago, I, I said to a man in our church, he said, can I, can, I use, uh, can I use your compressor? And I said, sure, you can use my compressor. It's God's compressor. And uh, so now I have people calling me all the time and they'll go, hey, Brian, can I use God's compressor? Can I use God's this? Can I use God's that? You know, when we look at our stuff as stuff that God entrusted to our care that we have for the benefit and the blessing of all of our brothers and sisters, that's when we're a church of irresistible influence because we're a sharing church. I am so thankful that Northwest is marked by that. I can say that. We're, we're, we need to do more praying. I acknowledge that. But I'm telling you, we are a sharing church 
church. Our share fund that we have that we will give to next week has never been healthier than it is right now. Why? Because people are sharing. You say, well, you're not spending the money. Oh, we are though. We are. We're giving away stuff all the time. But it's like the widow's jar. You, you give it away and more is put in all the time because we are a sharing church. And by the way, it's not just your money. It's not just your stuff. Sometimes it's a talent that you have that you're sharing and using for the benefit of other people. That's what marked this early church. Number seven, it said they received their food with glad and generous hearts. And the beginning of verse 47, they were praising God. They were a joyful church. That's what I wanna be. I wanna be a happy place, don't you? You know, they say that Disney World is the happiest place on earth. And if you go there and you're a kid, that's true. If you go there as an adult, it's the most expensive place on earth, right? You know that. But I asked myself the question just this week, why is it that Disney World is the happiest place on earth? Wouldn't it be great if our kids went, man, I think church is the happiest place that I go to. Instead of, do we have to go there? I want kids to run into Northwest. I love it when I see kids running into our, to our Northwest kids area. Or I love it when I see them running up to grab those, those donut holes. You know, we had people not, what do they call it? They do call them donut holes, don't they? Yeah, they call them donut holes. I, I had somebody not too long ago, it's been many years ago, that said, you need to do something about those kids going up to the table. Adults don't want to touch those after those kids have gotten their snotty little fingers all over, all over that. And I like, we'll let the adults go. But Jesus said, let the children be. Let them be. If making them, if coming to church and being able to go up and grab a donut hole and, and having somebody help them and say, hey, get another one, if that makes them love this place, then so be it. And some of you right away, I know what you thought. You thought, well, that's really simple. What a motivation that is. Just coming to church for donut holes from Dunkin' Donuts. Hey, if that's where it starts and ultimately we get them to the point where they understand that Jesus loves them, that he has a plan for their life, that he wants to have a relationship with them, a relationship they were created to have, and they grow up to be passionate followers of Jesus, money well spent, right? That's right, you ought to clap. Every one of you ought to clap. That's money well spent because we want this to be a joyful place. I want it to be a happy place. That's what church was in the New Testament. They got together, it was happening, they wanted to be there. Everybody wanted to be there. Somewhere over the last 2,000 years, most churches have forgotten that. And it is boring. And we don't want it to be that way. God's word should never be boring. It should never be boring. The teaching of spiritual truth to little kids, to middle school kids, to high school kids, it should never be boring. Why? Because it has the power to transform and change lives, both in this world and in the life to come. That's why we want to be a joyful church. They were an attractive church. It said that they found favor with all the people. I'm going to read you something here in just a minute. I'll, just, I'll skip right past that. But they were an attractive church. And then lastly, they were a growing church. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. There were always new people coming into the church. In the early church, there was no such thing as stagnation in church growth. They were always growing, always new people. Why? Because people said, this is irresistible. We don't know what this is. We don't know what it means, but we're gonna come and we're gonna find out because these people have something different. It's different here. These people are different. Why were so many people coming to Christ? Certainly the Spirit of God was at work. That's necessary for any man, woman, or child to come to Christ. 
But I would suggest to you that the curiosity must have been there because they watched these people who claimed to be followers of the risen Christ whose lives were peculiar. They were very different than the lives that they saw everybody else in their community living. And that is why we exist, to see people come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus. And so some of the reasons the early church found favor with the common man was because they were so different from the rest of culture. There was a philosopher named Aristides early in the second century who wrote these words, and I, I want to read them to you, and then I'll, I'll land the plane. But I think this is so important. Remember, this wasn't written last week. This is Aristides, an ancient philosopher written in the second century. He wrote this to the king. Now the Christians, O king, by going about and seeking, have found the truth. For they know and trust in God, the maker of heaven and earth, who has no fellow. From him they received those commandments which they have engraved on their minds in which they observe in the hope and expectation of the world to come. For this reason, they don't commit adultery or immorality. They don't bear false witness or embezzle, nor do they covet what is not theirs. They honor father and mother and do good to those who are their neighbors. Whenever they are judges, they judge upright, uprightly. They do not worship idols made in the image of man. Whatever they do not wish that others should do to them, they in turn do not do. And they do not eat food sacrificed to idols. Those who oppress them, they exhort and make them their friends. They do good to their enemies. Their wives, O king, are pure as virgins and their daughters are modest. Their men abstain from unlawful sexual contact and from impurity in the hope of recompense that, it is, to, that is to come in, the, in another world. As for their bondmen and bondwomen, those that work with them and their children, if there are any, they persuade them to become Christians. And when they've done so, they call them brothers without distinction. I love that. They refuse to worship strange gods and they go their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Falsehoods not found amongst them. They're not liars. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored. They rescue the orphan from the person who does him violence. He who has gives to him who has not, ungrudgingly and without boasting. When the Christians find a stranger, they bring him to their homes and rejoice over him as a true brother. They do not call brothers those who are bound by blood ties alone, but those who are brethren after the Spirit and in God. When one of their poor passes away from the world, each provides for his burial according to his ability. If they hear of any of the number who are imprisoned or oppressed for the name of the Messiah, they all provide for his needs. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. If they find poverty in their midst and they do not have spare food, listen to this, they fast two or three days in order that the needy might be supplied with the necessities. They observe scrupulously the commandments of their Messiah, living honestly and soberly as the Lord their God ordered them. Every morning and every hour, they praise and thank God for his goodness to them and for their food and drink, they offer thanksgiving. If any righteous person of their number passes away from the world, they rejoice and thank God and escort his body as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. When a child is born to one of them, they praise God. If it dies in infancy, they thank God the more as for one who has passed through the world without sins. But if one of them dies in his iniquity or in his sins, they grieve bitterly in sorrow as over one who is about to meet his doom. He concluded by saying, such, O king, is the commandment given to the Christians, and such is their conduct. <laughs> Second century. These people were a people of irresistible influence. This secular philosopher is writing, look, I don't get this. I'm just reporting. 
I'm just telling you what I have observed in these people over and over and over and over again. And it sounds like these people understood what the early church uh, should be like based on the mission that God gave them in Matthew 5 where he said, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its taste, how shall it be, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people put a lamp under a basket, but they put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, Jesus said, let your, shine, let, let, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. That, my friends, that is what it means to be. Those are the marks of a church of irresistible influence. And how sad it would be if we built a place and yet we were not that kind of people. <laughs> That's why here we are the second week, you know, where we're supposed to recommit. And those of you that are new, you know, hopefully jump on board with us. And we're not even talking about a building. You say, well, that's kind of strange. Well, really, it's not, because the building really ultimately doesn't mean a whole lot if we're not people who are irresistible by the way that we live our lives. C.T. Studd, who lived from 1860 to 1931, he said this, and it's something that songs have been written using this phrase, but he said this, and I've remembered it since the first time I heard it. He wrote this. Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bells. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And I think for me and I think for anybody who wants to be uh, and, and look like the New Testament church, that would be true. We're not interested in a holy huddle. We're not interested in just providing a nice little comfortable place where we can come once a week and kind of do our little thing and kind of pat each other on the back and feel good about ourselves and what we've done. We really want to be a place where we're a rescue shop that is within a yard of hell. You say, well, why is that? Because there are people in this community that need us to be just that. They don't need us just to simply meet and have a holy huddle every Sunday morning while they go on suffering in their lives. You say, suffering? This is Cary, North Carolina. What's, where's the suffering? Some of you grew up in homes that are so similar to homes right here in Northwest Cary. You had everything that society said you needed to have in order to be happy, but just beyond that front door, your mom and dad were at each other all the time. There was a horrible marriage. They didn't parent you well. As a result, you made poor decisions. And let me tell you, that's going on all over this community today. You look at these houses and you go, those people must be happy, but they're not. Look at that car, he must be happy. Look where, he were. Look where they went on vacation, they must be happy, but they're not. Why is that? It's because they don't understand that they are missing the relationship that they were created to have. And that's why God has left us here. I've said it over and over and over again. If we were just simply to be here and be left here just so we could study the Bible and have a holy huddle every seven days, I would have to ask God, why would you do that? I guarantee you I can worship God better if I'm in heaven. As good as this worship band is and I love listening to him sing, man, if I was looking at Jesus, it'd be better. It just would. 
And you may say, well, hey, I love the teaching here at Northwest. I hope you do. But let me just tell you, if you were in heaven with the master teacher himself, (laughs) you would never listen to Jerry and I again. I can tell you that. We can do all of that better. You know the one thing that we can't do when we get there? You know the one thing? We can't be influencers for the gospel. It's too late. People have then slipped out into eternity without Jesus, and they spend eternity apart from him. That's why we have to be a people in a place of irresistible influence. In just a few moments, we're going to respond together and and make a visible commitment as a church family. Some of you did this a year ago, and I want to remind you that we're not asking you to give more unless God has blessed you with more, unless God lays it upon your heart, and if he has, you better be obedient. If he's entrusted more into your care and you're able to do it, I say unapologetically and I say boldly, you should give more, okay? I want to be clear about that. But those of you that have pledged last year, if you were all in, you're all in, you're just saying, hey, I'm all in, I'm still there, I'm excited, I'm just reaffirming my commitment. There are a number of you, just like Jerry said earlier, that you weren't here a year ago, and um, um, you just kind of have been coming in on the tail end of some of what's going on, and several of you have asked me, hey, how can we be part of that? And I've said, just wait, just wait, we're going to give you another opportunity. This is it. This is it right now. And we want you to have that opportunity. And I want you to give as God prompts you to give. Um, I, by the way, I don't know what anybody gives except me. And I'm accountable only for me. Uh, I'm not going to see your pledge cards. I'm not going to see any of that information. I see a total just like you see a total. But I want you, if your heart's been broken, if your heart's broken for the people of this community and for this world, I want to invite you to invest in something that's bigger than just anything you could do personally on your own. And I do that unapologetically. I'm not ashamed to talk to you about money to tell you we need lots of it. I'm just not going to spin it for you. That's the way it is. It's expensive. Life's expensive. And if we're going to do something great, it's expensive. Okay? That's as simple as I can be.